Welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. What if the words your children spoke to you actually made you sick, physically sick? And what if the children themselves relished in this newfound power over their parents? This is the setting of our guest today, Ben Marcus's new dystopian novel, The Flame Alphabet. Ben Marcus is chair of creative writing at Columbia University and the author of three previous books of fiction, Notable American Women, The Father Costume, and The Age of Wire and String. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ben Marcus. Thanks for having me. So Ben, the, the Flame Alphabet is about a world where a child's speech becomes toxic to adults and where the adults are having to protect themselves and actually ultimately flee from their children. But, but what makes the Flame Alphabet really um, particularly compelling to me is that our protagonist, Sam, the father, he's trying every way possible to still be connected to his child, to his daughter, Esther, no matter how horrible or how harmful her behavior and her speech is, is to him. I was attracted to the question of what a parent would do. Do you stay with the child who, whose speech will ultimately make you perish, or do you, do you flee and then have the shame of having abandoned your child? I was interested in this kind of amplified language, just so potent, so toxic that it sickened you. But then I thought, well, who would suffer the most? If you didn't have children, maybe, you know, you, you can go hide and you could somehow control the circumstances. But the parent would seem like the ultimate victim in this situation. And, and that was why I wanted to tell the story from his perspective. And it really captures this, that tension that you describe it captures that weird mixture, I think, of um, love and and hostility that particularly happens in puberty when yeah. you know, a child's trying to become independent and yet they aren't capable of actually being independent yet. And children uh, sometimes have the luxury of trying out bad behavior on their parents. They can exercise a lot of... Uh, kind of intense emotions without really terrible consequences. These are behaviors, as an adult, you can't really get away with. You can't go to work and have a tantrum. <laughs> and you can't say, I hate you, and storm out, right? But you can with your parents. It's not nice, but parents forgive. And that's just a fascinating dynamic to me. Well, let's have you read a little piece from, from near the beginning of the Flame Alphabet, that describes some of uh, what's going on with the way language is changing and, and, and the way people are having to cope. Sure. In the months before our departure, most of what sickened us came from our sweet daughter's mouth. Some of it she said, and some of it she whispered, and some of it she shouted. She scribbled and wrote it and then read it aloud. She found it in books and in the mail, and she made it up in her head. It was soaked into the cursive script she perfected at school, letters ballooning with heart-dotted eyes, vowels defaced into animal drawings. Each piece of the alphabet that she wrote looked like a fat molecule engorged on air, ready to burst. How so very dear. The sickness washed over us when we saw it, when we heard it, when we thought of it later. We feasted on the putrid material because our daughter made it, we gorged on it, and inside us it steamed, rotted, turned rank. Esther sang as she walked through the house. Her voice was toneless from the throat in a frequency high in warding power. 
a voice with a significant half-life, a noxious mineral content, that is, if it could be frozen and crystallized, something then beyond our means or imagination. If her voice could have been made into a smoke, we would have known. If you heard it, you were thoroughly repelled. She muttered in her sleep and awake. She spoke to us and to others, into the phone, out the window, into a bag. It didn't matter. Nice things, mean things, dumb things, just a teenager's chatter, like a tour guide to nothing, stalking us from room to room. Blame and self-congratulation and a constant narration of this, that, and the other thing, in low-functioning, if common, rhetorical modes, in occasions of speech designed not particularly to communicate, but to alter the domestic acoustics because she seemed to go dull if she wasn't speaking or reading or serving somehow as a great filter of words. She did it without thinking, and she did it to herself, and it was we alone who were sickened. But of course we'd find out it was others too. Others and others and others. So one of the questions that this book seems to raise and which you you point out in what you just read is is can we connect without language can sam stay connected to his daughter esther yeah um without or or beyond language or is language something that is inextricably tied to our human connections is that is that something you meant to explore here yeah and i think uh throughout history we've had a great fascination with the question of what a person is without language. Somebody crawls out of the forest having been raised by wolves and he's an adult, but he's never learned language. And there's a, a really romantic notion of what the self or the soul is if it hasn't somehow been uh, you know, hidden by, by language. And I, I, I do explore that in the book and it is a really interesting question to me. I personally can't imagine life without language, which is also partly why I wanted to write a book that did try to. When you look at your body of work, at least initially, this seems like a big departure. You, your other books are are more formally experimental and less narr- conventionally narrative-driven than this book. But I wonder when I think further about it, when we think about the question of uh, can we connect without language, how is language... Um, something that can be harmful or, or connective and um, actual physicality in this book of, of language, which yeah. connects to some of your other uh, enterprises. Do you see that as a thread that, that thematically at least links yeah. your other books before? I do. Sometimes I do so. Unfortunately, I feel that I wake up and I have three or four interests and language is a diabolical wind. And in Notable American Women, my last novel, the father character is held in an underground container in his backyard and standing above him is a guy speaking into a speech tube and the language is going to fill the room and crush him. So I think that these ideas have always returned to me, but the way I wrote this book was deliberately different. Um, So there are some thematic connections, but I wanted this to be one man's story. In other words, it had to sound like a person talking, so it couldn't have, let's say, a dry technical or kind of more formally experimental voice. It had to sound like a person. So at the beginning of the toxic language epidemic, it's only Jewish children who are getting sick and harming their parents. And I was curious about that choice because it added, I thought, an effective ominous quality to the flame alphabet. But it also hearkened to 
the blood libels. And I wondered yeah. if that was intentional in the sense of, for people who don't know what the blood libel is, the accusation that Jews were stealing children and sacrificing Christian children and yeah. sacrificing them for ritual yeah. sacrifice. But this almost feels like the, the reverse, like right. Jewish children are infecting the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and, and I was sure. curious if that was an intentional um, uh, well, thing you were... You the were religion does about. end up playing a big role in the book, and um, so does blame. This is a, a kind of a plague, this speech fever sets in and the doctors and the scientists don't know what's going on. And in that confusion, I was interested in the way when we don't know something, our fears will drive us to make accusations like this. And the accusation that it is just Jewish Jewish children sickening people is actually a sort of ulterior motive of the villain in the book, this character Murphy, who wants something. He wants the blame to be focused that way because he has his designs on getting some sort of access to this super secret religious information. I don't want to give away too much information, but um, this was all then meant to increase the isolation of the narrator, Sam, and his wife, Claire. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Ben Marcus, the author of the novel The Flame Alphabet. Well, as you get farther into the book, it's clear that Jewishness is one of the central threads in The Flame Alphabet, and you've created this really great, believable sect of Jews called the Forest Jews. So tell us they, tell us about these Forest Jews who go out to these, these huts sure. in the middle of, of uh, the forest and— and what happens there? So Sam, the narrator, and his wife, Claire, go to a two-person hut in the woods, which is their synagogue, uh, inside of which is a, is a radio. It's a kind of a complex, hard-to-operate, inscrutable device that requires lots of manipulation in order to receive transmission from their rabbi. And they listen to a, sort of a fairly traditional uh, sermon from their rabbi, but their code is that they're not allowed to talk about it with each other. Their relationship is meant to be completely private to whatever spiritual connection they have. And one of the things that interests me about Judaism, I was raised as a sort of secular Jew and I was bar mitzvahed, but for the most part, there wasn't a lot of religion in, in my house, is that in the Jewish faith, there's there are no crusades in the history of the Jews where they're out violently trying to convert people. It's almost the reverse. There's a kind of comfort and confidence um, to the practice that they don't care what anyone else is doing. And and I like that idea that, that in the end, it's just about your own personal connection. And I, I, again, was exaggerating it. Also, though, I did a lot of research in mysticism, Jewish and Christian. And in mysticism, language has very little place. The idea is you transcend language and have this deep spiritual experience. Um, you know, they take vows of silence. They don't talk about it. The, to talk about it is to somehow ruin the experience. And I, I love the idea that language is not equipped to um, render that space inside us. So I, I think I was pushing a lot on, on these ideas. And of course, in this synagogue, the synagogue becomes a kind of object of uh, surveillance by the villain Murphy. He feels that what he doesn't know, ha he has to know it. He can't stand not having access to this religious information. He's trying to, ostensibly trying to cure the 
the language toxicity. And he's decided that the forest Jews hold the secret. So in some sense, by accusing Jewish children, sorry to go on for so long, he's trying to flush them out because no one officially admits that the forest Jews exist. It's interesting that, that the rabbi that they're listening to who's telling them not to even talk to their partners about what they're hearing, let alone have a, yeah. a congregation. He's also th- really uh, sermonizing about the overvaluation of comprehension in the sense that yes. just listen to what I'm saying. You don't have to understand it, right. which I just totally love. And I thought that really fit with a Jewish theme, in this, which feels very different than, say, yeah. like evangelical Protestantism, at least in the United yeah. States, which is all about the literal. Yeah. And here— in Hebrew, at least with Hebrew, that's considered the lowest form of interpretation. And and, and, and isn't the idea of faith really that um, you have to put aside your rationality? In the end, your reason should be um, dropped. You don't want to pick it apart. You don't want to overanalyze. Faith shouldn't be subjected to that. I think the rabbi is sort of almost going one step further, and he's almost saying, if you even think you're understanding this, you're on the wrong track. That's kind of an idea taken from Kabbalah which, you know, the, the, the super secret wisdom of Kabbalah was sort of held by one guy. And then, and he, he wasn't even admitting it. And his wife sort of was protecting him. And it turns out he had died a long time ago. And she may or may not have had access to this. And it was whispered between people. So this idea of super exclusive information that may not even exist really did drive the book to me. And, and there's this interesting paradox also around in Judaism, the idea that language would be insufficient, which is not just true in Judaism, but also how important language is. Like, God creates the earth by speech. And also, in some Jewish mysticism at least, um, the world is seen as actually constructed by letters, like that the Hebrew letters have made up the world. Yeah, the Hebrew letters in all of their various combinations end up describing God who by definition, is unknowable. And that's how, in a way, I came at the conceit of the book, because you're not allowed to pronounce God's name or even really make claims about God. And I thought, well, if all the letters in all their various combinations always spell God and you're not allowed to do that, then wouldn't all language be off limits? And that's sort of... There was there were times when I was writing that, and I thought, well, this is just a perfectly reasonable extension of what's already there. It suddenly didn't seem like so much of an invention to me anymore. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling, actually, because you create this, on the one hand, what seems like a totally absurd ritual that doesn't exist, but it seems so totally believable to That's me. That's nice. Well, thank you. I... I, and I mean, really, like, the they have these strange devices, which seem very, um, they, almost like 1980s Radio Shack on one level, yeah. and sort of like low-tech technology, and then on the other level, yeah. they seem extremely magical. And I yeah. love that fusion of these strange chords and yeah. the slippery underbelly of the listener that they have to use in the hut to and there's hear like a the... jelly on the cable that makes it more receptive. Yeah. And it's, it's... Uh, people themselves function as antennas. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not sure where all that came from, but that, that really interested me. You know, when I was really little and I, I think when I first remember hearing about prayer, just this idea that you were going to communicate way out there <laughs> with some, God, it seemed enormously difficult to me. I, I was obsessed with the logistics of that and how it could possibly work. Of course, I I wasn't capable of sort of putting my reasoning aside. My reasoning was all I had. And I think that's partly why 
in the synagogue hut, I make it so just extremely difficult for them to even connect to their rabbi. I like the idea that it's sort of a struggle. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Ben Marcus, the author of the novel The Flame Alphabet. In the in the beginning of The Flame Alphabet, you have an epigraph from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, Every word was once an animal. That's in the beginning of The Age of Wire and Strain. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Book. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. well, I have a question about that nonetheless. Sure. Um, yeah, of course. So, in every world, every word was once an animal made me think of Hebrew in the sense that yeah. originally all languages were pictorial. That's right. And That's right. Hebrew, and there have been several books on this, and I was curious if you knew of these. Was, has been uh, described as the first language that is both pictorial and phonetic. And hmm. so it's, and it becomes a language of exile in a sense, like a portable language, because it yeah. doesn't have to anymore uh, reflect what you're actually seeing in nature. Yeah. And so some people were actually blame Hebrew as the fall from, from man and nature, but other people see it as this transition away from image-based language. Yeah, and then copied by really all. Right. Almost and all languages. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I didn't know if that was, obviously it's coming from another book. So I was... Um, well, I should say every word was once an animal is is not an Emerson quote. It, it's, it is attributed to Emerson. But one of the things I was doing in that book was sort of deliberate misattribution. So the Emerson line is every word was once a poem, which is from his amazing essay, I think just called On Poetry. Um, and... Uh, in that book, there were just these, I would arrive at these ideas, and of, since I had made them up, they seemed to lack authorities, but I felt that if I attributed things like that to Emerson, then it seemed believable and people would remember it. Apparently it worked yeah. on me, right? Yeah. So in a lot of dystopian literature, it seems to me like there's some sort of issue around the deterioration of language. Uh, you see that in 1984, with the weird euphemistic yeah, language right. that becomes meaningless because it's saying it's opposite. And you even see it like more recently in Gary Steingart with Super Sad True Love Story, where almost all languages sort of devolved into a Facebook style form of communication. And, yeah. and here we have language being toxic. And I was yeah. curious if you saw um, language deterioration as, as something crucial to uh, sort of a dystopian uh, imagining of the future. I don't know about crucial, but I, I think I, I seriously understand why, as a territory, it's so fascinating to explore. We, we use language all the time just to have the most basic, superficial exchanges, and it's, it's something that's just so easy to take for granted. Uh, and I think in some sense it's hard for us to calculate the real impact it has on us. There are certain people in our lives, for instance, who could just say a few words, like, I love you, I hate you, or you know, I'm mad at you, or um, you, you've disappointed me, that suddenly cause our, our, you know, the chemistry in our body to change. Make our, make, this makes our heart race. This, literally, these words can change us at the, at the chemical level. And uh, it makes sense then because it's so powerful because language can be a weapon that it's going to be uh you know picked up by the imagination of writers and you know possibly put to you know the debasement of it will be exaggerated or the uh the potency of it will be exaggerated as i've done it makes a lot of sense to me there's a maxim in writing workshops i know you you teach writing at, at columbia that says um 
write what you know. And it's it's probably a maxim to the point of, of cliche. And, and in a New Yorker interview recently, you talked about uh, that you like to write what you don't know. And I, I was curious if yeah. part of writing a book that was narrative-driven, that dealt with issues of suspense and um, and other things that you would find in, in more conventional novels, if that was a challenge for you to, to try to write something that you hadn't done or, and part of you fulfilling that, that, um, yeah, that idea. Absolutely. And part of the problem is if I'm going to write something that I know or that I've already sort of assimilated or digested, processed, I, I just have no, I lose interest very quickly. And I, I suddenly the work just seems to be rote and I'm transcribing ideas I've already had. So I like to try to discover feelings that I didn't really know I had. Part of that is early in the book, I set the father Sam up with this, you know, this very difficult choice that we were talking about earlier. Does he stay with his daughter and perish, or does he leave her and and just be have that the shame of not fulfilling his role as a parent? So to me, I'm the parent of two little kids, and I. Th- think about what I could never do. I could never leave them. I could never willingly leave them. And if I think that I can never do it, suddenly that, that so the sort of blackness around that is something that I'm drawn to. So it's not so much right what I don't know. I mean, in a way it is. I feel that I'll bring all my resources to bear as a writer. I'll bring all my attention if I have that level of almost anxiety and fear of something. This is compelling to me. I I don't understand it. It's got moral complexity. And somehow I feel I write better if that is in play. If I already understand and I already know about it, I think my feelings aren't really awake to the experience. And then my writing just feels flat. And when you came to to do this book, The Flame Alphabet, with more of a conventional narrative, did you go to certain writers as... um, people to look for, for clues on how to do it? <laughs> well, I read all the time, and I, I have since I was little, and I've read and, and really love a lot of very traditional books that employ narrative in very traditional and beautiful ways. And so I think I, I had digested a lot of that. But early on when I was writing, I hadn't found a way to make it feel like it was mine. I think I had a... I, I had a need or a desire to try to write in a way I hadn't seen before. Um, that has its perils. It has its folly. It has its its sort of big sand traps. But for whatever reason, I felt that I was I, I rejected a bunch of approaches simply because a lot of people were doing them. This, you know, while it looked like a, a kind of a staunch artistic position, in some sense, I, I was always writing what I could. And I was always sort of writing at my limit. And there just came a time when another set of tools opened up to me and I wanted to try this. I don't see it as more or less traditional, really. I think as writers, there are these different approaches you can take. And there's this big toolkit. And, you know, I like the idea having sort of felt like I had exhausted the use of some tools of just picking up some other ones and trying those. So do you have an idea in your brain what you would imagine would be your next challenge, the thing that you couldn't conceive doing, but you want to be able to get to the other side of and, yeah, it's and accomplish? Funny. Someone sort of actually asked me that recently, and I just blurted out teacups and flowers, like a kind of a book that's just completely mild without a really intrusive sort of palpable crisis so that the drama has to be strictly interior. 
This is not, you know, plague, apocalypse, or even a bad day. This is something about just serious emotional shadings. And I've been trying to explore that in some short stories recently. And my next book is actually a story collection. So I don't know if that is true, but I I wonder sometimes, well, was I leaning too hard on calamity? Like calamity supplies you with drama and we want drama. We want conflict. But what if there's none? You know, on the other hand, no one wants to read a book about a guy sitting at a table kind of reflecting on how nice his life is, right? So probably not if everyone's happy. That's right. Happiness is just bad news in fiction. But that sort of also intrigues me. Uh, It's very hard to think of. I mean, can you think of a happy novel that you like? Can you name one? No, yeah, I, I actually, I can't wait to read your happy novel. Now. <laughs> okay. I'm not promising that I'm doing one. It's just, uh, I think though, sometimes those blind spots, those, those things that seem difficult or impossible, sometimes intrigue me. And I, I, I need to care a lot in order to get started on something. Well, it's certainly true that there's tons of funny novels. And yeah, you really can't course. think of novels where everybody is really discontent with their lives and and living among each other harmoniously. They must exist, right? There must be a genre of this out there. God, you would would uh, think so. Well, but you know, there are versions of this because I think sometimes people don't like a book that doesn't feel redemptive, right? That doesn't feel like there's hope at the end. And this divides some readers. Some readers say, you know, give it to me straight. (laughs) Make this as dark as you can make it. But a lot of readers simply don't like that. And they'll say, you know, I I have no need to revel in this awful, bad dream of a world. Why would I do that? You know what? And so... I mean, you know, in some sense, there are books that are highly redemptive where things are turned into lessons and, you know, joy is extracted out of every little scene. So I guess there are versions of this out there. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Ben Marcus. Thanks for having me. It was fun.